You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters, Samuel and Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we left off talking about Herodotus and his seminal work, Historia. I mentioned that in this work, Herodotus gives us the very word history. It comes from the ancient Greek, and at the time it meant inquiry, which is what Herodotus gave us. He traveled around, he asked questions, and he gives us the stories that he heard. Today we're going to discuss another ancient Greek word which has made its way down into modern English, although, much like the word historia, it has changed its meaning over the intervening centuries. The word in question is apocalypse. Today, the apocalypse is an event. The apocalypse, the end of the world. You might have a zombie apocalypse, or a nuclear apocalypse, or a religious apocalypse. But that's not what the word meant to the ancient Greeks. Literally, it translates to the English word uncover, or maybe more accurately, the phrase lay bare. The Romans translated the word into the Latin as revelatio, or revelation. In modern English, we might say that the biblical book of Revelation is about the apocalypse, which it is. But that sentence wouldn't make any sense to the ancient Greeks, or even to medieval biblical scholars. To them, it would sound something like, the biblical book of prophecy is about the prophecy. The book of Revelation is an apocalypse, or rather, it's a work of what's called apocalyptic literature. That is to say, it's a revelation. It is an uncovering. It's a prophecy made by Jesus Christ about the end of days. An apocalypse was a prophetic work in which the future was revealed. It's actually not Revelations that I want to talk about, though it's a different biblical book, the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel comes from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and it was an extremely influential work to religious, literary, and historical writers. Now, I don't want to delve into the content or the prophetic qualities of the book of Daniel. What I want to talk about is the style, the literary style. It was an apocalypse. It was a revelation about the future of Judea. And that future was imperiled by, well, the book of Daniel tells us it was imperiled by great beasts fighting one another. 
The greatest of all beasts was destroyed, cut into smaller monsters, and now those four monsters fought for control, and they fought over Judea, threatening to destroy her. Now the book of Daniel makes it explicitly clear that this is a historical allegory. It outright tells us at one point that a certain beast they discuss is a representation of the Persians, and that greatest of all beasts, that was the empire of Alexander the Great. The lesser beasts fighting one another were the Hellenistic kingdoms founded by Alexander's heirs. Specifically, in this case, it was Ptolemaic Egypt and Seleucid Persia. When the book of Daniel was written, they were currently fighting over Syria and the Levant, including Judea. Now, that allegorical history of beasts and angels, when you put the pieces together, is mostly correct. It follows the history of Greece, Persia, Alexander, and finally, the rise of the Romans. I mention this because allegory was a popular device in the ancient world. It's fallen out of favor today, especially when talking about history, but it was used all throughout the classical world, right up until about... Oh, the time that a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates was published. Today we're going to continue our look at the tale of Captain James Misson through the lens of allegory. This is episode 112, A Truly Moral Pirate. Last time we discussed James Misson, a French nobleman from Provence who went to sea to seek fortune and adventure, we told of his early days, learning all there was to know about ships and sailing. We discussed his sojourn into Rome, where he met a priest named Caraccioli, who had fallen out of love with Holy Mother Church. We told of a fight with Barbary pirates. We told of a fight between their French ship and English ships in the channel, in which the French captain was killed, and James Misson rose up to take his place. And we told of their decision to sail south as free men who were beholden to no power but God himself. Now if we were to look at this story, the fictitious tale of Captain Misson, as an allegory, some things might become a bit more clear. The French, the most royal of all nations, the most powerful nation in Europe at the time, kind of represented European civilization. And that's given to us in the character of James Misson, and that even kind of brings the contradiction of his name into clarity. James is an English name, it's an English language name. The French equivalent of the name is Jacques, the Dutch is Jacob. So James, Jim, Jimmy, Jamie, Jimbo, Jim Bob, they're all English modifications of Jacob. I mean, how many Jimmies do you know that were born in southern France? And Keep that correlation in mind, Jacques, Jacob, and James being the Gallic, Dutch, and Anglican versions of the same name. That's going to come into play in the near future. So old Jim Mission here represents the English and the French and the Dutch, the three Western European nations who became most interested in seafaring after the decline of the Spanish and Portuguese. Then this young man who represents these three nations met a young, heretical Catholic priest, a priest that had serious problems with the way that the church was run, and also had serious problems with the theological teachings of the Catholic faith. This heretical priest begins talking to James Mission about his attractive, heretical version of the faith, and he converts James and all of the seafaring men who followed him. 
Now what young heretic priest do we know of who could be said to have converted the representation of France, England, and the Netherlands? Naturally, I mean the Augustinian friar Martin Luther. It was Luther that ushered in the Reformation, which changed everything in Europe. It was a defining moment, a defining movement, and it was seminal to the pirates of the Golden Age. Now the Reformation, alongside other things, the printing press, the increased literacy rates that came with it, and the increased wealth of the middle class, but all of that led to social and political upheaval. The sort of upheaval that might just be represented by a fictitious, allegorical priest preaching the gospel of revolution. The gospel of inherent human rights, of the overthrow of the structures of power, and the overthrow of the control that had dominated mankind for centuries. See what I'm getting at here? I'm arguing that, well, I'm not necessarily arguing that it's the case, but that it's possible that the story of James Masson was an allegory about the early days of the Western European pirates. At least, the changes that this French nobleman underwent represent quite perfectly the story of the changes that Western Europe went through. So the next incident in Masson's tale is a fight with the Sali Rovers, the Barbary Corsairs, now, this kind of puts a hitch in the whole thing. Exactly what the Barbary Corsairs might represent, if they represented anything at all, I don't know. And I agree with J.R.R. Tolkien when it comes to allegory. He said, quote, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and always have done so since I grew old and weary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purposed domination of the author. End quote. Allegory is an imperfect tool, and when it's done poorly, it's a dull tool. It's all connect the dots and fill in the blanks. It's paint by numbers. But if the story of James Masson is indeed an allegory, then who would the Sally Rovers represent? It could be just Islam in general, or maybe the Ottoman Empire, or the Crusades, who knows. Personally, I think that they're just the Barbary pirates. This allegorical apocalypse that was written by Captain Charles Johnson, this story of Captain James Misson, isn't about Europe. It's about pirates. Not necessarily this fictitious captain in particular, but the story of European piracy in general. This allegory touches on all the major religious and cultural shifts that, well, that we've talked about on this show, everything that created the early modern world. That was the soil from which the pirates sprang forth, and that story necessarily has to intersect with the Barbary pirates who were responsible for so much of what we consider pirate culture today. After the encounter with the Barbary Corsairs, the victory over the Barbary Corsairs, the ship Victory won a battle against two English ships in the Channel. They did, however, lose their captain and all of the officers on board. So the crew resolved to sail on as free agents, men who were in charge of their own destiny and fortune. They followed the teachings of the Italian deist Signor Caraccioli, their own personal Martin Luther, who proclaimed that all of the structures of power created by mankind were an affront to the natural order of God. And Misson made it clear that they were not pirates, they were a sort of social and religious revolutionary movement. 
Masson called the men together, and he told the crew that, quote, Since the men had resolved to seize and defend their liberty, he was under an obligation to recommend them a brotherly love, the banishment of all private piques and grudges, a strict agreement and harmony among themselves, that in throwing off the yoke of tyranny he hoped none would follow the example of tyrants, for when equity was trodden underfoot, misery, confusion, and mutual distrust naturally followed. End quote. I spent a lot of time in our last episode talking about freedom and modern political ideologies, and I don't want to spend much on that today. We're talking about allegory and literary apocalypse here, but that quote, that passage does have the ring of liberté, égalité, fraternité, doesn't it? And what does that mean? Liberty, equality, and fraternity. And what's another word for fraternity? Brotherhood? What's another word for brotherhood? Robin, I've got it. Brethren. Brethren of the coast. You know, maybe I'm stretching things a bit far here, but I am saying that he's pushing an idea that became popular among the pirates, or the privateers, of the West Indies during the Buccaneer era. So, if this were a true allegory, after the representations of Reformation and Barbary Corsairs and the introduction of this sense of brotherhood those European pirates would have to move westward to the New World and the West Indies. The crew of Victory moved westward to the New World and the West Indies. Captain Johnson called it a shortcut to England, but I think he was trying to be funny, and they spent some time there in the Windward Passage between Cuba and Hispaniola. They captured a number of ships in that time, no big prizes, but that brings us to a difficult question. When is this story supposed to have taken place? At one point, the text would suggest 1707, but later on we're going to meet two characters who would have been dead for at least 12 years by that point. If we attempt to date the story using the few actual historical events we can point to, the story of James Masson should probably take place in 1692. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing in the story to contradict that date, but that's the timeline that I've chosen to use here. But remember, that doesn't really matter, because none of this actually happened. One of the main reasons we can say that is because, well, first of all, most historians agree, but one of the reasons that they all agree is because if there were any truth to the tale of James Misson, we would absolutely have official records of his activities there in the Windward Passage. You know, by 1692, by the earliest this story could be taking place, and even later in 1707, it wouldn't make any difference. Both were quiet years in the West Indies, as were most of the intervening years, at least as far as piracy was concerned. I mean, there was a war on after all, but things were quiet enough that a French ship operating in the Windward Passage, capturing Spanish, English, and Dutch ships, would have been remarked upon. And this French ship caught another French ship. That would have been condemned by every mouth in the West Indies as the worst sort of vile piracy. And that didn't happen. So we can be sure that this did not occur. If the Barbary Corsairs were an allegorical representation of early piracy in the Mediterranean, then who would they have to encounter to represent the Buccaneer era? Naturally, a Jamaican privateer. We're told, quote, The day Misson left St. Christopher's, they saw a sloop which had the impudence to give them chase. 
One of the men who was acquainted with the West Indies told Captain Misson it was a Jamaica privateer. I am, said he, no stranger to their way of working, and this despicable fellow is ten to one will give you some trouble. It now grows toward evening, and you'll find, as soon as he has discovered your force, he'll keep out of reach of your guns till the twelve o'clock watch is changed, and he'll attempt then to clap you aboard with hopes to carry you in a hurry. End quote. So Captain Masson formulated a plan. He armed every man on board the Victory, and he told nearly all of them to stay out of sight. Then he kept a sharp eye out for the Jamaican sloop, but he didn't see her for most of the evening, not until eleven o'clock, when this Jamaica privateer was spotted sneaking up on Victory. Captain Johnson described the Jamaican sloop, quote, hankering up on her windward bow, end quote. But Victory stayed silent. They didn't raise any cry, they didn't ring any alarm bells, the only bell to ring on board was the expected tolling at midnight that marked the end of a shift. The watchman on board Victory appeared to go about the motions of changing the watch, but all of this they did as far from the windward bow as possible. They wanted to make it appear as though nobody could have possibly spotted the English privateer, and the sloop caught up to Victory quietly. Her crew began their silent assault, which was the buccaneer's specialty, stealth raiding in the dead of night, taking the ship quickly and quietly. Normally they would send a few men aboard who would kill or incapacitate the watch. Then they'd bring a few more men over. Then they'd take the magazine, the officer's quarters, and finally the crew's cabin. All of this was to be done silently, without raising suspicion, without raising alarm or resistance. Normally that's how things would go for a buccaneer raid, but this time, they fell into the waiting arms of an ambush laid by Captain Misson. The initial force of privateers was captured without any shots fired and no alarm was raised, and once the English privateers were secure, Captain Misson ordered his men over to the sloop to capture her. The English realized that something was amiss here and tried to cut away, but the French were too fast. Misson and his men were over the side and swarming the sloop's deck in moments. They took her. Come morning, Misson brought Captain Harry Ramsay to meet him in his cabin. By this point, Captain Misson knew that the only cargo on board the English sloop were the implements of the privateer trade, shot and powder, rags, steel, rum. And the captain of the sloop, Harry Ramsay, told Misson that his business was the defense of Jamaica, and Captain Misson and the entire crew of victory had no enmity toward Jamaica. Misson sent the captain below decks and convened a council of his crew to discuss the fate of the Jamaican privateers. When Ramsay was once again brought above deck, he was informed of their decision. He and his crew would have their freedom. They would have their ship. They would still be in possession of their steel, their rum, and their guns, along with their food and water. However, Misson would have to commandeer their shot and powder. Still, though, it was a good deal. The Englishmen thanked Misson, though they did beg him to leave them enough powder, no shot, just the powder, but enough for them to salute victory. Misson told them, though, that that would not be necessary. Victory headed southeast, toward Cartagena and the Spanish Main. En route, they encountered two Dutch vessels, relatively powerful ships in tight formation. However, victory had the guns and the men to take them, 
if only they could get them out of that formation. They engaged the Dutch vessels, and for six hours these three ships danced around each other. Misson would attempt to get between the two, or sometimes he would try to get one of those ships between himself and the other Dutch ship. Either way, he would have the opportunity to defeat the Dutch, to overpower them, but always the Dutch managed to outmaneuver him, and whenever they did, they usually managed to get off a volley or two. Masson grew worried that these shots might take down his mast or maybe disable the rigging, so he decided that one prize would be enough. Captain Masson brought victory right up on the Dutch ships, putting himself in a precarious position, but he opened fire. He focused everything he had amidships on the larger Dutch craft. In half an hour, or maybe less, that ship was under the sea, along with her crew and cargo. The other Dutch vessel immediately capitulated. Now, Massal found 14 French Huguenots on board, who had been prisoners, and he took them on as crewmen. The Dutch he took on as prisoners, and then the crew elected to sell their prize at Cartagena. And this is, frankly, kind of baffling. What follows will once again bring up the question of when exactly all of this is supposed to have taken place, Captain Masson took on the false name of Forbin, apparently the former Captain of Victory's name, his late relative's name, the name that was on all of the official papers of the Victory. Caraccioli took on the name Dobney, the late first mate of the Victory. The ship sailed into Cartagena, handed over all of their official paperwork, and sold their Dutch ship to the Spanish shipwrights there. But that's the confusing part. I can't see any way that a French ship could sail into a Spanish port city, especially a city like Cartagena, without being arrested, or maybe even not even having the opportunity to be arrested, maybe just being blown out of the water. If this was happening, as I suggested earlier, in the year 1692, France was at war with Spain. France was at war with everybody. It was the Nine Years' War. But if this was happening in 1702, on the other hand... France was at war with Spain. France was at war with everybody. It was the war of the Spanish succession. This was the reign of Louis XIV. France was at war most of the time, and it seems that they were always fighting against Spain. It's possible. Well, the West Indies wasn't Europe. Most of the animosity between Spain and France on the continent came from disputed territory there, and there was some fighting on Hispaniola over disputed territory, fighting that was led on the French side by La Roe de Graaf, but the Spanish in the West Indies were a bit more concerned with Anglo-Dutch forces, forces that they were sort of technically allied with, but far from being friends with, so maybe this was an enemy-of-my-enemy situation. Maybe it's just poorly researched historical fiction. According to the story that we have, they sold the ship, made a fortune, and anchored off the coast. Then they received a letter from the governor of Cartagena. And this, well, that letter from the governor informed Captain Misson of a ship that was going to be leaving Cartagena with a cargo of solid gold bars, a cargo to the tune of 800,000 pieces of eight. The Cartagenan governor told the captain about this because he wanted to ask the French ship to provide an escort. And I cannot wrap my mind around how dumb this is. It's so dumb that I kind of want to believe it. 
I mean, who would make something this dumb up? What English author would write in 1724, not that far removed from this story, about a Spanish governor trusting a French pirate with nearly a million dollars in gold bullion? That's, I mean, today that's closer to 50 million dollars. I can only imagine that that element of the story might come from an actual historical tidbit somewhere, and I don't have any evidence to back that up, but why else write that? Naturally, Captain Masson sailed out to escort the Spanish treasure galleon, but he never managed to find her. The ship, according to the account we have, was too fast for victory. But there is another possibility here. Maybe that isn't as dumb as it sounds. Maybe the Spanish governor was extraordinarily clever. Maybe that letter, if it actually happened, and it probably didn't, maybe it was a smokescreen. Maybe it was a ruse to overthrow these French sailors who were obviously pirates, to throw them off the scent of the actual treasure galleon that was sailing. Be that as it may, the crew of Victory had made a lot of money in the West Indies, but they decided it was time to leave. And they had a decision to make here. Everyone wanted to leave, but where they were going was not decided. Many of them wanted to travel to Carolina, and then on to New York and New England, but many others wanted to travel to Africa. The crew was divided, but in the end, they took a vote, and they elected for Africa. So they careened their ship, they took on water and foodstuffs, and then they set out across the Atlantic. It was an unremarkable voyage, but once they reached the coast of Africa, they captured a Dutch ship. It was the Neustadt of Amsterdam. And that ship carried 18 guns, 40 hands, and about 2,000 pounds in gold dust. Not 2,000 pounds of gold dust, but 2,000 pounds sterling, the British currency worth of gold dust. By far the most valuable cargo on board, though, was human cargo. There were 20 or so slaves found in chains below decks. I always feel uncomfortable calling slaves cargo. After all, they're human beings. I think it was Pirates of the Caribbean 2 when Jack Sparrow was meeting with one of the evil English aristocratic bureaucrats. They were discussing a deal in the past on which Sparrow had welched, and Sparrow said something to the effect of, people aren't cargo, mate. And that should be baseline morality, right? But it wasn't to all the pirates. There were plenty of pirates who perpetuated the slave trade, there were those who fought against it, of course, and Captain Masson turned out to be the latter sort. He unchained the slaves. He clothed them in the fine Dutch clothes that he found on board. He fed them, and then he spoke to his crew. Quote, The trading of those of our own species could never be agreeable to the eyes of divine justice. No man had power over the liberty of another, while those who professed a more enlightened knowledge of the deity sold men like beasts, they proved that their religion was no more than grimace, and that they differed from the barbarians in name only. He had not exempted his neck from the galling yoke of slavery, and asserted his own liberty to enslave others. Though these men were distinguished from the Europeans by their color, customs, and religious rites, they were the work of the same omnipotent being. End quote. Again, that's baseline morality stuff. These days it is. But this was 1724 when this was written, and in 1724 this was radical stuff. And this whole story is radical. 
then next time we're going to be exploring the possible political and religious leanings of the author. But this story is a declaration, uh, maybe a manifesto, of the beliefs of the author. And they were giving that manifesto in the ancient tradition of an allegorical apocalypse. In 1924, 200 years after this was originally published, Don Carlos Saitz wrote in his book Under the Black Flag that, quote, Mission tried to be a truly moral pirate, end quote. Now, of course, Misson did not try to be a truly moral pirate because he didn't exist, but the author wanted to create a truly moral pirate, not unlike Jack Sparrow, frankly, that would represent the best that humanity had to offer. And this was in a time when being the best that humanity had to offer made you uh, an outcast from society, and it made you an outlaw. You know, this is civil disobedience by Waldo. This is the Underground Railroad. This is a black person sitting at a lunch counter in the Jim Crow South. This is a declaration that defying what is wrong, although lawful, is the only correct way of acting. And as I said next time, we'll look at why that might be what the author believed. But on with the story, the victory continued on south down the west coast of Africa. They captured another Dutch ship. They took all of those goods on board and brought that ship along as an escort. But shortly before they reached the Cape of Good Hope, Captain Masson made a decision. The Cape would be hard sailing, and right now they had more than 90 prisoners on two different ships. They didn't want to carry these prisoners around the Cape, so... Captain Masson just gave the prisoners his escort ship. You know, here's your ship, here's some water, here's some food. You're free to go. And this was a moral decision. A practical decision, but many pirates would have made a much more amoral decision in this situation. Eleven of the prisoners, though, decided that they didn't want to sail away. They elected instead to stay with Captain Masson. Two of them were sailmakers. They had a stone cutter as well as an armor in their ranks. And after they rounded the Cape of Good Hope, they encountered the richest prize that they had yet to come across, an English East Indiaman, belonging to the English East India Company. There was a quick, if fierce, engagement. They used the word smart in the text, and it looked for a moment like Missal might actually have to withdraw from this battle. But one of Victory's shots killed the captain, the pilot, and the first mate. The Englishmen surrendered, and the men of the Victory boarded her. They found that this merchant ship was spectacularly laden with provisions and goods. There was spices and dyes. There was fine china. And then they found 60,000 pounds in English crowns and Spanish pieces of eight. That's to say nothing of the guns on board. Missal took all the prisoners ashore. I imagine that for them, they feared the worst. They had been taken by pirates. If they were taken ashore, they were either to be abandoned or executed. Masson took his entire crew ashore as well, except for a skeleton crew. But then he had his stonecutter get to work. The stonecutter began to cut a monument for the deceased English sailors. The French crew went to work digging graves for the slain. And then they placed the monument at their head. It read, Isigist un brave Anglois. Here lies a brave Englishman. The English crew was moved. 
and Masson told them that he would drop them off at a nearby English settlement, and the English appreciated this kindness as well. However, Masson did give them another option. These men had the opportunity, right now, to live the lives of free men, not under the yoke of tyranny. Anyone who wanted to join him was welcome. And nearly half of the English prisoners chose to do so, 40 of the 90 sailors who had been on board. When the other 50 were dropped off, as promised, Masson gave Signor Caraccioli command of the East Indiamen, and he distributed his mixed crew of French, Dutch, English, and West African sailors between the two ships. He plotted a course north, toward the island of Madagascar. Next time, we're going to follow Captain Misson to Madagascar. We'll meet, along with the crew of Victory, another pirate, a pirate who actually existed in this case. And then we'll look at... You know, we never really got to the apocalypse today, did we? The prophecy of this story, the unveiling of the future of this story. If we take it back to the book of Daniel, well... There are many interpretations of the prophecy made in the book of Daniel. However, the most cut and dried interpretation, the clearest interpretation, never happened. It never came to pass. It served as a rallying cry for the people of Judea. It may have saved their nation and the Jewish people, but it never really occurred. If this book, the book of James Masson, is a piece of apocalyptic literature, well, it's never going to come to pass either. But next time, we're going to look at that future that never came to pass, the founding of the truest pirate utopia ever to exist, Libertalia. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has given us a review or a rating, wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has recommended this show, Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. I'd also like to recommend that everybody who is not already subscribed to the fantastic pirate podcast Under the Crossbones with Phil Johnson go do so. This week, he interviewed our own Sam Conifalinde, and they talked about Sam's book, Be More Pirate. And then, after you're done listening to that episode, go buy that book. For someone as steeped in pirate lore as I am, that book still taught me a lot. It's definitely worth a read. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Shake down the tree
time has come now to bid him goodbye. For at first light this morn, the old captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.